This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. There was a big development this past week in the race for the federal conservative leadership. It was announced unceremoniously late Tuesday night that Patrick Brown had been disqualified as a candidate for unspecified election financing violations. Members of the Brown campaign have been consulting their lawyers in an effort to fight back. A statement from the Jean Charest campaign says there needs to be full transparency regarding both the allegations and the Brown team's response, which Conservative Party officials have rejected. The accusations have been out there for months. They came from the rival Pierre Polyev camp, and that's what Patrick Brown's people say this is all about. Certainly, this development is bad for conservatives trying to position themselves as the government in waiting. On Wednesday, Libby was joined to discuss the news by liberal strategist Bob Richardson, senior counsel to National Public Relations, John McEtitian, Patrick Brown's campaign manager, and conservative strategist Michael Diamond, principal of Upstream Strategy Group. Disqualifying a candidate for the leadership of a party should only happen in very, very extreme and rare circumstances, and it must be done with full accountability and transparency. So if uh, Ian Brody and Leoc felt that there was cause to remove Mr. Brown from the campaign, and they obviously did because they took that uh, fairly extreme step, uh, they ought to put out exactly what the findings were that led to the conclusion that it was best for the party and the proper course of action to remove him from the race. So uh, I'm not going to doubt their uh, conclusions because you know, they deliberated it. I did not. But they ought to for both their reputations and the good of the party and in fairness to Mr. Brown, Mayor Brown as well, put out the cause of this decision. John McEtitian, campaign manager. So uh, was this a total surprise? We have been hearing allegations, again, coming from the Poilievre camp uh, uh, about irregularities. Was this move a, a surprise, a shock? Um, the underhanded, unsubstantiated, uh, hateful attacks by Pierre Poilievre's campaign were not a shock. Uh, they've been pretty much uh, running, a, and, and as we now have uh, the numbers on how many people in each riding, um, you know, uh, other people are going to roll out that information to show just how much they've been lying to people. Uh, so, so the attacks, no, not a surprise. Uh, the fact that uh, people uh, gave them to the party and the, how the party acted in this is, the, is not a surprise, it's a shock. Um, at no time were we ever told you're being accused by this person of this violation. That never happened. So um, I was very pleased to hear what Michael just had to say because we would agree completely. What's the accusation? We still don't know. There, there's some nefarious kind of thing that says we think you violated election 
uh, Elections Canada rules, but no evidence was ever presented to us to be able to respond to. I got to tell you, first, we're in shock. Secondly, we're looking at everything that we can do to respond to this late night attack. We didn't even know they were having a meeting about this yesterday. We weren't invited. And, and again, uh, no opportunity to reply within the party to any accusation. Bob Richardson, liberals must be very happy looking at this. Well, my friend Warren Kinsella says in a column today that uh, governments defeat themselves, but nobody is as good at defeating themselves as Tories. And uh, I did chuckle a little when I, when I, when I read that. Look, I have no uh, pony in this race, but um, something doesn't uh, sit right here for me. There seems to be a huge lack of due process here. It's got a kangaroo court kind of feel to it. Uh, it comes out late at night. There's no spokesman. There's no opportunity for questioning. Uh, um, apparently, it wasn't even a unanimous uh, decision. We don't know if that is true or not, but that is, that's what's being said. The other thing that bothers me about this is I've been hearing rumors about this from days from multiple supporters of Mr. Polyev. That makes me, uh, again, uncomfortable from a due process point of view that uh, one candidate's uh, people uh, seemed to know exactly what was going on. Uh, there's a very good chance he could have won this leadership in his own right, you know, in a multi-candidate race. Now, uh, I think people are going to look askance at his leadership a little uh, should he win, um, given, uh, given the way that it's been handled. Liberal strategist Bob Richardson, senior counsel to National Public Relations, John McEtitian, Patrick Brown's campaign manager, and conservative strategist Michael Diamond, principal of Upstream Strategy Group. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Later that same day, Patrick Brown announced he would be appealing the decision and had hired high-profile lawyer Marie Ennen to fight for his reinstatement as a candidate in the federal conservative leadership race. At the same time, a group of Brampton councillors came forward to complain that Patrick Brown is not focused on his job as Brampton's mayor because his attention has been on the federal conservative leadership race. Libby spoke with Patrick Brown on Thursday about all the fast-moving developments. I'm angry. If, if the party wanted to have a coronation, they could have told me at the beginning. Um, you know, we signed up over 150,000 um, Canadians to participate in this leadership race, particularly from diverse communities that had never voted in a Conservative leadership race before. And they feel disenfranchised. They feel that their voice has been um, taken from them. And so I'm I'm very much um, upset with uh, how this has, has gone down. Um, but uh, ultimately, a political party um, is not a democracy. It's a private club, and they can make decisions that are not uh, consistent with um, the procedural fairness you'd expect elsewhere. They say this is based on allegations from inside your camp and that they have uh, some kind of paper trail and that it's not from Poiliev. What's your reaction to that? Party establishment is clearly doing the bidding for the Poiliev camp. Um, it was the Poiliev camp that told my campaign chair, John Reynolds, uh, just last week that they were going to try to get us disqualified. It was his supporters on Leoc that were pushing this. You know, this was a split decision. Um, half of Leoc thought this was egregious, and uh, the Polyev uh, sympathizers uh, on Leoc pushed this through. They've, they have, they've had a history of being bullies. They 
got Ed Fast, the finance critic, removed as finance critic. They tried to kick my campaign co-chair, Michelle Rempel-Garner, out of caucus. Um, and all we've heard is that there's an allegation that someone who was um, a volunteer on my campaign was being paid by a business, that we've been told no information about who the individual is, what the business was, and if for some reason someone was working on my campaign during work hours, we would certainly um, want to fix that and compensate the business. But we have no idea what they're talking about. And so it's impossible to file, as you, to respond to um, a phantom allegation. And we lo- we've asked the party for details. But, you know, let's call a state a state. You know, this is a flimsy allegation used to justify disqualification um, because they were nervous uh, that we had the points to win this. Uh, I really felt with my strength in urban and suburban Canada with the huge membership numbers we put up with Jean Charest's strength in Quebec, um, that there was a, a real path to victory. We were just discussing this on our municipal panel, and um, some people were saying it sounded to them like it might be an issue of somebody being seconded to your campaign, possibly from from Brampton. Is is that something, is that a possibility? And I know that happens a lot on campaigns. So we asked that question. They wouldn't give us any information. So we'd just be, be guessing. And I would note, in terms of the city of Brampton, um, uh, of course, you know, there was employees that wanted to support my campaign. Um, but we had a strict policy um, that you, you could only do so um, when uh, when you're not working. If you wanted to volunteer, it's the same rule we have for provincial and federal elections. Any uh, employee is allowed to get involved in a provincial or federal election, but they have to do so during their non-work hours. And, of course, we abided by that. What are your next steps, and, and what's the timeline on them? I mean, if you're sending things to the courts, that usually takes time. Are you trying to get things speeded up? Yeah, you know, obviously we're looking at our legal options as as quickly as possible, uh, but time is the enemy right now. And uh, it's unfortunate that the party would engage in this uh, intervention uh, as ballots are being mailed out. Uh huh. And uh, so you're, you you have no sense of a timeline and to uh, what court it would be appealed or anything like that? No, we're not there yet. Um, but uh, uh, hopefully um, we'll know what our options are very quickly. And uh, in the meantime, uh, you're in Brampton? I'm in Brampton, yes. Uh, I was at work at City Hall yesterday and uh, um, I'll be in Brampton for the next few days um, uh, figuring out uh, what the next steps are. Patrick Brown, Brampton's mayor, appealing a decision which has disqualified him as a candidate for the federal conservative leadership race. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, we're number one, but not in a good way. I'll explain next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Although we've been hearing airport chaos is now a global problem, Air Canada and WestJet had the worst record for delays in North America over the long July weekend. Why does it seem that nothing, or at least very little, is being done by the federal liberals in Ottawa to resolve the problems? 
This was a topic of discussion when Libby was joined on Tuesday by our Recovering Politicians panel. Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario NDP, former Conservative Senator Hugh Siegel, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. It's shocking that back in April, this thing was already developing, and it's not a peak season. And yet these things are happening. So it was evident that we were going to get into a crisis situation. There needs to be accountability. And uh, you can't keep blaming everybody else for some of the failures that are happening. But somehow, uh, he's not alone in this. There has to be uh, better preparations in order to prepare for the, 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 the return from the pandemic. I mean, these peak demands, the requirements for people. A lot of people are just staying home. A lot of pilots can't get their licenses renewed. We can't even get our nexuses renewed. So the delays at the airport are a combination of so many things. Some people can't even get their passport. So yeah, a lot of people can't get their passports. Hugh, I mean, should somebody in the government step up and say, uh, this, is, this is my problem? I mean, should Algabra resign? I think one of the things that uh, a resignation on the part of Al Gabra would do, and by the way, um, as those uh, my colleagues on the panel will know, a minister can submit his resignation, and the prime minister can refuse to accept it. But at least in submitting his resignation, he's saying, I'm prepared to take the heat. And none of that has happened, and I think that would be something that would be, quite frankly, quite constructive. The other issue is, and there is an interesting piece done by the Institute for Research on Public Policy, about who is in the public service now, federally. Who are the people in the the passport offices? Who are the people working in Transport Canada? And the answer is, they are now mostly of the millennial generation. A lot of people in their 50s and 60s retired during the pandemic, because they could, (laughs) leaving a whole bunch of folks who are, you know, younger and hardworking and determined and loyal, as far as I know, but who really don't have the experience to really figure out how to do all this in the same way who someone who's been in the passport office for 15 years would understand instantaneously. And I think we should take a page from what Premier Legault did during the high point of the COVID. He said, we need nurses and we need doctors, and we need the retired doctors and retired nurses to come back and help, and there will be an incentive if they do so, and it would really make a difference. And you know what? To their credit, to our fellow Quebecers' credit, thousands of them came back to help. And I think if the federal government said the same thing about the passport office and about the Nexus, the Canadian side of the Nexus piece and all the rest... I think a lot of people would come back, and that would help the millennials cope with what is a circumstance with which, to be fair, they have no experience at all. Howard, I mean, um, again, you know, this is, uh, regardless of what's going on in the United States, should the Liberal government step up and take responsibility for some of these screw-ups? This this is a a multi-pronged problem. It's not just a federal government spends its time, uh, you know, doing cameo appearances for the news uh, and not doing effective public administration. Part of the problem, too, for the federal government is much of what they do is contracted out. And the contractor may, in fact, be where the problem lies, but they don't care. Or, uh, you know, the whole issue of, of security at the airports. Yes, you have an agency but you have individual companies who are contracted to provide the service. 
and, and so the government doesn't have any effective control over that. The, the reality of what's happened over the last three years, and it doesn't matter if you look at the federal civil service, the provincial civil service, health service, police services, fire services, a lot of people said, I'm, I, I'm, I didn't sign on to deal with what I'm having to deal with now. Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario NDP, former Conservative Senator Hugh Siegel, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, Tuesday's Recovering Politicians panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Revving engines on modified vehicles, horn honking, leaf blowers, and construction— It all adds up to the second most harmful exposure we face, and that is noise pollution. The World Health Organization's noise guidelines recommend 45 decibels for sleeping. But Toronto public health experts have found that 93% of residents in this city are trying to sleep in environments above that, with 43% dealing with readings above 55 decibels, a level that has been found to increase risk of heart attacks, among other problems. City councillors are in the process of reviewing noise directors, and advocates say there is a lot they can do to bring down the level of noise. On Wednesday, Libby discussed the issue with Tor Oyamo, Assistant Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at Toronto Metropolitan University, Harold Smith, Director of Lytton Park Residence Organization, and Councillor Shelley Carroll for Ward 17 Don Valley North and a member of the Economic and Community Development Committee. Well, it will be headed to council now. We've uh, finished the uh... Uh, considering it as economic development. And it goes to council with uh, much stronger recommendations than than staff had had intended. Staff seemed to be, uh, you know, really reluctant to go down the road of of banning uh, uh, two-stroke gas-powered leaf blowers in in, uh, um uh, in alternative to the uh, to the electric battery and much quieter uh, equipment, they say it would be difficult to enforce. But uh, this is purely an issue of decibel levels for some people. Uh, for some, it's the environmental poison. For some, it's just the noise. But either way, um, toxic lawn equipment is is really going the way of the dodo bird. And, and people were, were lining up to tell us that in committee this morning. And so the recommendations going to council will be stronger and leaning much more quickly towards a ban than, than what staff recommended first thing this morning. Harold <laughs> Smith, uh, you have been fighting this for a long time. That, that's right. I've been uh, specifically working on, you know, getting the city to enact strong regulations that severely limit the amount of noise from mechanized gardening. Um, and uh, do you expect any action? I mean, we've just heard Shelley Carroll say that uh, staff is reluctant. And I know that when it's being discussed, it's with a long kind of phase-in period so that it's not fair to people who bought this equipment. Uh, is that good enough for you, Harold? Uh, I don't. I don't think it is. Staff, um, it, specifically um, Parks and Rec, they can't even say when they're going to completely get rid of gas-powered equipment, and it's a bit unfair to compare them to the to the average 
independent contractor. Parks and Recs is a very complex organization with, I don't know how many hundreds of staff members they have, but an independent landscaper, I don't know how many employees they have, but it can't be more than 10. And they can, you know, certainly switch to battery-operated equipment. Certainly the warning has been, you know, sounded about phasing this out. It's commercially available. You know, the example of, you know, over 200 cities in the U.S. or jurisdictions, the fifth largest economy, California, is banning the sale of gas-powered equipment in 2024. Some people say, well, hey, people, did you uh, buy a place where that was close to a highway or close to an airport? Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the kind of jeopardy that that is putting these people in, uh, Tor. Yeah, no, uh, a lot of those comments can can be discussed at length. You know, they really do describe uh, how intricate and complicated this problem is even some of the stuff about vehicles you know that we need to go like right to the federal government about regulation on what types of and levels of noise that are allowed to be produced but uh back to your question about which really i think is a, it's an issue of environmental justice and and you know people making that argument that you well you you bought a place next to the airport so that's your problem i i, I don't think that's a good argument you know we should all have uh, access to and all have uh, the right to to a healthy uh, environment, and it's it's a public health issue and a, and a joint responsibility to make sure that it's not an unfair exposure distribution of any pollutant. But in, in, and of course, I concern myself more with with noise pollution. So it's not really just a sort of deal with the noise. You bought a place there. This is a public health concern that has you know ramifications for you know costs on our healthcare you know, down the road as well. So it's it's a really big, big issue that needs to be addressed from, from different angles. Tor Oyamo, Assistant Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at Toronto Metropolitan University. Harold Smith, Director of the Lytton Park Residence Organization. And Councillor Shelley Carroll for Ward 17 Don Valley North and a member of the Economic and Community Development Committee. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Ed in Burlington phoned during our segment on noise pollution. I have two, two complaints. One is about the leaf blowers, and the other one is about the concrete grinding. The concrete grinding, it, it puts a lot of dust out, and they don't try to mitigate the dust. It's all over the place. I, I already asked them to use the wet method, and they they don't want to use it. But it is really a, a pollution for noise and also for the dust. Rudy in Toronto phoned to say he thinks cars contribute to much of the noise pollution in this city. The, the people that 
use their horns unnecessarily when it's not an emergency, and then they, they lean on them for, for several seconds. And it also seems that, that uh, manufacturers have been making the newer cars with horns that are of higher decibel, which is more irritating to the ears. And uh, hearing a, a horn suddenly go off in a car, it's suddenly that, that's more, more irritating than, uh, than listening to leaf blowers for, for uh, 10 minutes or so. Bill in Toronto phoned about the disqualification of Patrick Brown from the federal conservative leadership race. I'm a card-carrying uh, conservative, and uh, there just seems to be scandal wherever this man goes. I personally believe he was put there just to stir up trouble for the conservatives. So I couldn't be happier that he's gone. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Daryl in Toronto, who also phoned about the Conservatives' move to disqualify Patrick Brown from the leadership race. I'm not really surprised by this at all. I mean, considering that this is the party that uh, a couple years ago had membership drives and took the money, and then uh, the members elected what they thought was going to be the leader of the party, and then after the election, the caucus that rode the leader's coattails into office dumps them. So it doesn't seem to surprise me. That doesn't seem You're to be talking much. about Aaron O'Toole, and uh, yeah. there are a lot of people, and we've been talking to them, who think that the way he was uh, gotten rid of is kind of uh, unseemly, uh, at the very least. Well, as I said, I, I just don't understand this, this particular bill, which only the Conservatives have adopted, that lets the caucus change the membership. I mean, they've just taken in $9 million in membership fees. And uh, these members are supposed to elect a, a leader, but, but there's no reason that they won't just turn around and do the same thing, ignoring the membership. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.